Let's read this morning from God's Word, Matthew 14. This is verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to, to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot to, from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You can give them something to eat. They said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said to them, Bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up towards the heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over from the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. You know the story of David and Goliath, right? It's one of those stories you didn't have to grow up in church to know. There's this young boy, really, David, goes to visit his brothers out in the trenches where the Israeli army is camped across the way from the the Philistines. And there's this giant of a Philistine named Goliath who comes out every day and mocks Israel's God and Israel's army and, and challenges anybody to come out. You pick a champion and come out and meet me, Goliath, on the field of battle. And young David, even though he was just visiting the front that day, young David did that. Not because he believed he was stronger than Goliath, but because he knew God was. And he believed in God's promises to protect the nation of Israel, that one day he would be king. And you know that story, that's in 1 Samuel, and if we were going through 1 Samuel instead of Matthew, and we came to that passage, and I preached through the story of David and Goliath, and I told you, you know what the most important part about that story is. You know who the real hero of the story of David and Goliath is? It's the rocks. You'd say, wait, what? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the rock is what killed Goliath. I mean, he was dead before David even got up there to him, right? If you know the story, he went and chose five stones, and David with a slingshot slung the rock. The rock's what killed Goliath. So that, the rock is the real hero. You would think I was the one that got hit in the head instead of Goliath if I preached that story that way, correct? You would say, no, the the rock is just a rock. The only reason the rock did anything good is because it was in the hand of someone who could, who was skilled enough to aim it truly. And David is the hero of the story because he trusted in God. He took what he had, brought it to the Lord. Lord, this is what I can do. How will you use me? And God, the ultimate hero, used a young boy with a slingshot and some stones to slay the giant giant and save the day. Now where we pick up in the gospel of Matthew today, Jesus is 
taking his disciples into Jesus' boot camp. Um, the next, we're going to three weeks, but it's two stories. These are very, these are, these are big miracles, but these, these are about Jesus training the 12 to carry on without him. Jesus has been rejected by the nation of Israel, at least out in Galilee, and we'll see soon that, that he's been rejected all the way to, to Jerusalem. And so for the rest of the book of Matthew, Jesus' teaching is going to turn inward toward the disciples. Not exclusively, but most of his teaching is going to be about training the disciples to get along without him. Because very soon, Jesus is going to tell us that he already knows what's coming for him. He is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed on a cross. And, and then he's going to rise again. He knows that's coming. He's going to ascend into heaven. But he also knows once he ascends into heaven, his guys, the 12, 11 of them, plus some other closer friends, they're going to have to carry on without him. And here's what Jesus knows. Very, in a very real way, from a human perspective, the fate, the eternal fates of millions and millions and millions of people are going to depend on this small group of men and their friends to get a, to move, a movement of the gospel off the ground. Because Jesus knows once he ascends into heaven, the only people who, are, who will ever join him are those who have come to believe that what he did on the cross, he did as punishment, as payment for my sins, for your sins. That's the only reason anybody gets to join Jesus in his full kingdom one day. So how does Jesus start to prepare his boys? He could, he could have started by explaining what I just explained to you. He could say, all right, huddle up guys. I want to tell you. I'm going to go away, and after I do, the fate of hundreds of millions of people, their eternal fate depends on your ability to start a movement that's going to be opposed violently by the Jews and the Romans and really all the most powerful forces the world will ever know. But if you don't get a movement off the ground that will last for thousands and thousands of years, the entire world is doomed eternally. And they'd be like, where do I sign up for that duty? That sounds reasonable. Jesus doesn't start there. Here's where he starts. By showing his disciples. By showing his disciples. If they stay connected to him, even, if, even when he's a little bit physically separate. If they're with Jesus, and if they're obedient to Jesus, Jesus can do things through disciples that they can't actually really do. He's going to show them that today. We're going to spend two weeks, starting next week, on you know, next, the next story. Jesus and then Peter are going to walk on water. And Jesus is going to, this is Jesus' boot camp. This is about training the disciples about who he is and what he can empower faithful, obedient disciples to do. Because it turns out we can do way more than we feel like we are capable of doing when we're obedient to him. It's a very famous story. Uh, the, the five loaves and the two fish. It's usually called the feeding of the 5,000, even though 
there were thousands and thousands of more people than that there that day, probably. But I'll still call it the feeding of the 5,000, just because that's cause the popular term. Let's look through what happened. I just want to teach through verse by verse, see what the passage says, and then we'll, we'll see what, what we should learn. Verse 13 um, says that when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from that area in a boat to a secluded place by himself and the disciples. Um, Last week, we studied about the execution of John the Baptist. The John in that verse is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. He'd been executed by Herod sometime before. But what Jesus has heard now is that Herod has begun to hear about Jesus. And if you glance up in the first two verses of Matthew 14, Herod's conclusion about Jesus is Jesus is actually John the Baptist reincarnated, come back to haunt him and punish him for what Herod did to John the Baptist. Well, if Herod killed John the Baptist once, and Herod thinks John the Baptist is back... And it's not yet Jesus' time to die. It seems reasonable that Jesus would withdraw from that area. And he goes to a secluded place. Your Bible might call it a desert, but it's, it's not like sandy, arid. It just means a desolate place, Aramos in Greece. Wilderness, desert, uh, secluded place, something like that, where nobody lives. He tried to get there probably to spend some time pouring into his disciples. It's Jesus' boot camp time. But the crowds hear, see where Jesus has gone, and they follow him as they always did. Verse 14, even though Jesus wanted some alone time with his disciples, he, when he sees all of these people, he feels compassion, and he goes right back to doing what he has always done with the crowds of people. He begins healing their diseases and their disorders and, and just ministering to the needs of needy people. Well, that's what's going on for who knows how long. But then when it was evening, we probably would call this still afternoon, but whatever. In verse 15, the disciples assess the situation. And they look, if you glance down at the last couple of verses of this passage, 20, 21 in there, um, 21. Matthew tells us there were 5,000 men there. We don't know how many women and children, but this is a massive crowd. Even if it were only 5,000 people, that's more than every man, woman, and child in Chase County, right? And if they have, um, if there's women and children there besides, I, I don't know how many people are there. Are there 10,000? Are there, are there 12,000 people there? There's probably a larger crowd than's ever been assembled in our county for any reason. And the disciples look out at this crowd and they don't have, they didn't bring food with them. And they start to get nervous. Like we have a little mini humanitarian crisis on our hands. And their solution is they tell Jesus, uh, Hey boss, this place is desolate. And the hour is already late. It's getting on toward meal time. So here's our solution. Send the crowds away, Jesus, so that they can disperse into the various villages north and south of of here and inland from here and they can find their own food sort of divide and conquer that makes sense and then Jesus 
says something in verse 16 that had to stun the disciples. Jesus said to them, the crowd doesn't need to go away. You feed them. And I don't just emphasize the word you because I think that makes the most sense. In the Greek, you is emphatic. It's almost like it's said twice. I won't do, I'll spare you the Greek grammar lesson. But it's like Jesus says to the disciples, you, you give them something to eat. And the disciples are like, mm, okay, uh, we just have one teeny little problem with that, Lord. <laughs> we only have five little, these are little loaves of bread made out of barley, they're small, and two fish, and it's not even the word for big fish, these are fishies, either pickled or dried, think sardines, okay? Which, by the way, the ones in mustard sauce are awesome, but that's a story for a different day. Um, so this is all the food we have. If, you, if you're familiar with this story and you're looking for other details you thought you remembered as we read this, it's because this is the only miracle that shows up in all four Gospels. And in the other Gospels, we learn other details like the disciples were arguing or talking with each other really about we don't have enough money to buy food. Even if we did, we, we, there's no place to buy it. Um, we know that Andrew found a, a little, a young boy that had this, these five little loaves and the two fish. Matthew sort of cuts to the chase for us and just says, Lord, uh, here's our problem. You've told us to feed all these people. We can't all, we, we don't have enough to feed the smallest fraction of this size of a crowd. And then Jesus, uh, Jesus says this in verse 18, bring them, here, bring them here to me. The five loaves and the two fish, bring them here to me. And then in verse 19, ordering the people to sit down, all of our Bibles say sit down, the Greek actually says lie down. Because the translators chose sit because when we get ready to eat, what do we do? We sit down. In that culture, when it was time to eat, uh, especially a formal meal, they reclined. They lay down. So Jesus tells them, assume, tell everybody, assume the position you're about ready to eat. My disciples will be around to feed you in just a moment. Don't forget to tip your waiter. So he tells people to assume the position for a meal. And then he says the blessing. Still in verse 19, he looked up toward heaven, he blessed the food, or he gave thanks, same things. He broke the loaves and he gave to the disciples and tells them to go feed the crowd. Man, do I wish I could go back in time and be there for that prayer. Because I would like to just look at the disciples' faces while Jesus is doing this. You think about this. Jesus has just told them, I'm not sending anybody away, you you go feed them. Bring me the food you have. Everybody lie down. Get ready. Wash up. And while he's saying the blessing, you think the disciples' eyes were closed during that prayer? Because I do not. I just would love to see the looks on their faces. 
maybe there were a couple who were excited like, oh man, he's going to do a big one this time. But I'll bet some of the 12 were a little more panicky. Like, what is he even thinking? Were they looking around for the biggest, like the Domino's pizza tractor trailer to show up or something? The biggest pizza delivery vehicle you've ever seen? But that's what he does. And he gives them, we know there are, we know there are 12 baskets because of the end. I don't know how this, we don't know how this miracle went down. I know at the end there are 12 baskets, so my assumption is each disciple had a basket with some of that bread and maybe some of the fish. Some of the fish, I don't know. And they, they carried it around. I don't know if they passed it around or, or if they walked around uh, digging in and handing out bread. But what we do know is the baskets just never ran out. The disciples handed out and handed out and handed out and handed out food until all of these thousands of people, verse 20 tells us, had eaten. They were full. And the disciples, picked, they picked up what was left over. And there were, there were 12 baskets of leftovers after this is done. And here's the picture So, Jesus did the miracle, correct? But Jesus used the disciples to sort of deliver the miracle to the people. From the picture we have, Jesus sort of separated himself at least a little bit. You guys go out amongst the people. I'll provide the power. You provide the legwork. And that's the way it happens. And I think the picture that we are left with at the end of this is a little bit like what's on the screen there. I assume leftovers, they were more broken up than this, but think of what a day the disciples had that day. They, they thought they were going to be alone with the Lord. The crowds found them. I have a feeling they were a little bit indignant toward the crowds, like, what is wrong with you people? How can you come all, how irresponsible for you to come all the way out here, you don't have food. Then they get panicky because Jesus has told them to do something they can't do. And then they spend, what? I don't, how long would it take for 12 guys to serve 12,000 people? So they're probably tired. And at the end of this day, I think they are, this is what I see in my mind anyway. They're each holding this basket and looking down into more food than they each started with. And they're looking down at the proof that what they have no power to accomplish, Jesus has the power to use them to do. They didn't have the ability to feed all of themselves much less everybody. It's just like the disciples become the stones in the hands of the king. They just become the rocks, the tools that the Lord used in a powerful way to people's benefit and to his glory. 
And that's why I'm convinced that even though this was a very public miracle, this is much more about training the disciples than it is about Jesus displaying his power to the people who were there. And he wants the disciples to know not just what they are capable of doing. He wants them to know who he is. He's doing something, I think, really special here in the first day of Jesus' boot camp. You know the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. You know that one? King David wrote that um, as a way to celebrate poetically how just looking back through his life, no matter how bad stuff got, I'll be okay because the Lord is with me. I think Jesus uses this miracle feeding of the 5,000 plus as a way to demonstrate, I'm that guy. I'm the good shepherd. That's what he'll call himself later. I'm the one David was talking about, even though David wrote that a thousand years before Jesus showed up. Let me show you what I mean. You can turn if you have your Bible. I'd encourage you to bring a Bible if you've got one or have one open. It's, that's, that's, that's good. But Psalm 23 David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus. I want, I want you to see the feeding of the 5,000, how Jesus sort of makes this Psalm 23 show up that day on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Psalm 23, verse 1. Um, David begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is written about, see how Lord is in all caps there? That's because in the Hebrew, that's the name of God, Yahweh. Uh, and um, because the Jews were not, the Hebrews, the Israelites, were not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Yahweh is that name. They wouldn't even say it. And so they would put in a word, that, a more generic word beside his, besides his name. But that's the word. It's the name. It's Yahweh. It's the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament. And David says, because I've lived... This long, I know I am not going to be in want. I'm going to have my need, all that I need. Why? According to verse 1. Why? Because the Lord's my shepherd. The good shepherd is going to take care of me. That's what, the, that's what Jesus wants his disciples to know on day one of boot camp. Here's how he does this. Check this out. Verse 2 of Psalm 23. He, it's God, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. What did Jesus order the people to do that day? It is Matthew 14, 19. He tells them all to recline where? In the green grass, if you look back at it. He literally ordered the people to lie down in green pastures. David says, The Lord leads me beside the quiet waters. Where was that feeding of the 5,000? Where'd that take place? He got into a boat and went to the other side of the sea. It's a lake. This is beside the still waters. David writes that the Lord, I I know I'm going to have what I want because he restores my soul. Did Jesus do that for the disciples this day? Did they get panicky? Did they say, we can't do this? We don't have enough food. What are you doing? Stop. Jesus says, hey, chill. Relax. You just be obedient. He restores 
their soul. He guides them in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus gets the glory. This is all done for the sake of his name. I love this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Um, There's a lot of really hungry people there. I don't think they were going to stay there until they starved to death. But had they stayed there long enough, they would have. Was that a problem? Is hunger a problem if Jesus is around? No, we don't have to worry about that because the good shepherd is with us. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What's a shepherd use a rod and a staff for? Two reasons. One, as a weapon to keep wild animals away from his sheep. Is it a comfort to know that God keeps enemies away from you that would like to devour you. Absolutely. But shepherds use their staff for something else too, and that's to keep the sheep in line. Use their, their hot shot <laughs> to put it in a lo- the local vernacular, right? To, to keep the sheep where he wants them. Do you know there's great comfort that Jesus will keep, tends to want to keep us in line marching where he wants us to go. Do you know why that's comforting? It takes the pressure off. All I have to do, all I'm responsible to do is what he tells me to do. I'm not responsible for the results. I can't do this stuff. It's too hard. The disciples in, this, in, the, in the story today in, in Matthew, bring that stuff to me. I'm going to say a prayer. You just go... And take this food to these people. I'll take care of the results. You are just responsible for obeying. It's a great comfort to know our responsibility is obedience. His responsibility is results. Moving on down through the psalm. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Why did Jesus withdraw from where he was? to go out to where this story happened? Because Herod had just decided he was John the Baptist reincarnated. Did, did, Herod, did Jesus have dangerous enemies? Yes. Did he prepare a table in spite of enemies? Yes. Matthew's preaching at us here. Matthew's arranging this story. It's part of the reason why he put the Herod story before this, I believe. You have anointed my head with oil um, in 1000 BC. Anointing with oil, it was a picture of um, health and healing. And uh, what had Jesus been doing before he fed all those people? He saw all the crowds and he had compassion. And what did he do? He was healing all their diseases. And David said, my, my cup overflows. Well, there were at least some baskets overflowing that day, weren't there? And here's the conclusion that Jesus wants his disciples to come to that day. Goodness and mercy is going to follow me all the days of this life, and I'm going to dwell in the house of my Lord forever. And as the disciples each look down into that basket full of miraculously created leftover bread, 
after Jesus has just shown himself to be the shepherd of Psalm 23. I think this is the lesson that the Lord would have them learn. Jesus, because he's the good shepherd, Jesus will empower disciples to do what he asks them to do. Jesus will empower disciples to do what he asks them to do. What a great lesson for the disciples, right? What did he ask them to do? Something easy or something hard? Feed 12,000 people with five sack lunches. He, asked them to, he didn't ask him to do something hard. He asked them to do something impossible. And then, in spite of them saying, we don't have enough food, we don't have the means, we can't do this, he said, bip, 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 bip. you just do what I ask you to do and leave the results up to me. I will empower you to do what I ask you to do. Do you think Jesus still operates that way or do you think that was a one-shot deal? I think he still operates that way. That's the lesson I want us to learn this morning too. Jesus will empower disciples to do what he asks them to do even if it's hard, even if it seems impossible. I want to give you three points that I think support That overall lesson we get from this story that Jesus will empower disciples to do what he asks them to do. First, Jesus often asks disciples to do things they can't do so that they'll learn to depend on him to accomplish what he asks. Jesus often asks disciples to do things they can't do so that they will depend, so they must depend on him to accomplish what he asks. You know, Jesus arranges a humanitarian crisis, asks the disciples to solve it, which they can't, then he empowers them to do it. Jesus is the same way with us. He has not changed from eternity past. He will not change through eternity future. He still asks disciples like you and me to do stuff that it at least feels like we can't do. I can't share my faith. I can't tell someone else about Jesus. I can't initiate, you know, uh, getting some people together outside of church to be in a relationship involved around the world, a word and accountability. I couldn't do that. I couldn't teach. I couldn't lead. I couldn't... I don't know what he's going to ask you to do. How about this one? I can't forgive that person. I can't reconcile that relationship. He often asks us to do things we feel like we can't do. Because he wants to hear us admit that we can't do it. You know, if the only things we ever do, even, I mean, good churchy type things, 
If the only things we ever do for the Lord are things that we feel completely capable of doing, I'm talented enough, I'm disciplined enough, I'm whatever enough, I'm resourceful enough. If the only things we ever do for him are things we feel completely qualified and equipped to do, guess who's going to get the credit when those things get done? We are. And if we're honest, sometimes that's what we want. I mean, it feels, feels good for somebody to say, oh, man, look at her. And she's really got it all together. And I can make a list of the stuff she's done. Man, look at that guy. He really is talented and creative and whatever. The real work of Christianity has always been done past people's abilities and comfort zones and the way they feel like they're equipped. Always, 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 always. God will take people into the wilderness. He will take people to the end of themselves, to the end of their abilities, past the the extent of their resources, until we feel weak, until we feel helpless, because God has always used the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And if we're going to have an impact on this world for Jesus Christ, we're going to have to start by admitting we cannot have an impact on this world for Jesus Christ apart from the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. When we try to do it out of our own talent and resources and and whatever, it's just not going to be what it needs to be. Jesus often asks his disciples to do things they can't do. He waits to hear us say, I can't, before he says, now we're getting somewhere. Sometimes he takes, sometimes he, before we will learn this, he takes us to a place where we're so broken and feel so inadequate and such a failure. Maybe just to hear us turn and say, I can't do this. And he says, all right, let's go. Paul says it this way. Love this little verse and a half. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, he says, now we have this kind of confidence in God through Christ. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as if it were coming from ourselves. Our adequacy is from God who made us adequate to be servants of a new covenant. Does God have things for you to do? Yes. Will he ask you to do things you think you can't do? Yes. And he will make you adequate to serve him in those ways. Jesus is still empowering disciples to do what he asks them to do. Second, if we're going to have an impact for Jesus, if to do these things that Jesus asks us to do, real disciples have to be motivated by compassion. Compassion is the motivation of our faith. We see it in Jesus today. I try, he's trying to get away. He wants to pour into his disciples. This whole crowd shows up, and what does he model to his disciples? I'm tired. I need time with you. But look at all these people. Compassion. The 
whole reason Jesus came to earth is for compassion. He was on a mission of compassion. And here's why that's important to remember. We've got to check our motivation for our service, for what we're trying to do. Because if we're not careful, we'll be motivated out of a desire to be seen or heard or noticed. You can do things like toward other people without really being motivated by compassion for other people, right? The real work of the gospel comes out of a motivation of compassion. Here's why that's another reason why that's really important. If I'm motivated out of compassion, here's what it stops me from doing. How many of you have said, I'll tell them myself here, I've done this. Oh, Lord, I can't do that right now. I don't have the... Fill in your blank. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the money. I don't have the hair. Maybe that's just me. Right? God God uses people who serve out of their neediness, their, their inability, their incapacity. Right? God uses people who serve out of compassion. Paul, you know where Berea was? A place called Macedonia. Paul, Paul held the Macedonian Christians up as an example because they were impoverished people and he was carrying around a box of money that was going to go back to the Jerusalem church. And guess where a lot of that money came from? The neediest people. It's like they gave, they begged me. I told them I didn't want their money and they begged me to let them give out of their poverty. Why? Because they had a compassion. Compassion for other people's needs is what keeps me from waiting until I have enough time and enough money and enough what everything else that we never get. And number three. This is when number one and number two come together. Number three says this. When we are motivated like Jesus, compassion and we're obedient to Jesus, that's when he uses us to do what only he can do. When we're motivated like Jesus, and when we're obedient to Jesus, that's when he uses us to do what only he can do. When I am motivated by compassion, in other words, I don't just do stuff because I don't want anybody to say I don't do anything around here, and I suppose... No, when I'm motivated because there's people who need to know Jesus and there's people who need trained and there's people who need disciple. And I see that need even if they don't. I'm motivated by compassion and I'm willing to ask, what would you have me do? And listen for an answer and be obedient. that's That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the work gets done. And it's still happening the way it happened with those disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus may not feed people miraculously by recreating bread in a basket with you. But look at what he did. He said, stop thinking about what you don't have and bring me what you do have and then let's get something done. Lord, we don't have enough food. We don't have any place to buy it. What do you have? Well, we got five little loaves of barley bread and a couple of anchovies. 
bring them here. Folks, that's still the way it works. We bring to the Lord what we do have. Put it in His hands. Say, what would you have me do with who I am and what I have and where I'm at? And we listen and we, we, and we obey. And like stones in the hands of the king, that's when he slays giants and seals eternities and disciples disciples and changes the world. How about we start focusing on what we do have? Bring it to the king. Put what we have in his hands and see what he can do. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we want to be stones in the hands of the king. We know that we are incapable and inadequate to do anything that would change anything of any you know, significance or importance, but you can change everything. You can do anything. God, will you start to change our hearts and our minds and our focus so that we can focus on what we do have instead of what we don't. That we can bring to you what you have given instead of being sore at you for withholding what you haven't. Give us again a sense of compassion for people who are lost and people who are hurting and people who have needs. Dare I say, Lord, if you would tell us what to do and we would listen, then we will try more to obey. But Lord, we, we can't can't do things we're weak but you are strong change things Lord change things for the people around us change things for the eternity of people in Chase County in southwest Nebraska and around the world and if you would use lunks like us to do that Lord the crowns we earn we will throw at your feet one day say I couldn't do any of that that mattered that was you the whole time glorify yourself in Jesus name